All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another podcast here at Politics Band. And I am your host today, and thank you very much for taking time out of your day to take another listen to the podcast here at Politics Band. I do sincerely appreciate it. If you want to contact me via social media, you can do so either by tweeting at me on Twitter at Politics Band, or you can always reach me also on Facebook at Politics Band facebook.com slash politics band and then finally you can always read my thoughts or blogs at politicsband.com so I'm, i think i'm going to be giving myself a little bit of a challenge here i was originally kind of working on doing a a weekly release for the podcast but you know what it's you know honestly ladies and gentlemen here it is it's october 9th 2018 and we are less than a month away from the 2018 midterms in November. And I'm starting to think that it might be important that I try and put out as many podcasts as humanly possible to reach as many of you as I possibly can in the short amount of time that we have left. And believe me, our time is very, very short. And today I have a particular mission. You know, I was thinking about this over the night and I was seeing a couple of videos that were coming out on Twitter if you haven't seen them, I highly encourage you to go look them up. There's been a couple of videos circulating from some Antifa action in Portland, Oregon, where they were blocking streets and again in their attempt to intimidate people into silence or ultimately just using the opportunity to hurl racial slurs and then use intimidation tactics to essentially frighten people. That's essentially what is taking place. Antifa has the purpose of frightening people into silence frightening them into compliance, frightening them frightening them to not leave their homes. And they don't really seem to discriminate, of course, against anybody except for their skin color or just yelling and screaming at anybody that seems to yell and scream at them back. This is thuggish, violent behavior. And the fact that the media continue to pretend, and, and include not including just the media, but social media influencers as well, continue to pretend that Antifa are somehow peaceful protesters. It's a joke. We are, we are beyond just simply having to educate ourselves about the nature of this organization and what they stand for and what they do. At this point, if you still continue to believe that groups like Antifa are just simply peaceful protesters who somehow just get attacked and they're just defending themselves you seriously need to have your head examined because you are either incredibly, incredibly ignorant or you are just a straight-up lying hack. Either way, there is no other explanation, no other rational explanation for why these groups are allowed to continue to operate with the impunity that they do. And so I'm looking at these different quote-unquote protests, which really what they are, just small, small-scale riots. I'm watching as... An elderly man in a silver sedan trying to make his way through the protesters and makes the sudden decision that he is going to have to ram through some of these people, likely because he felt intimidated or he felt like his life was threatened. And what do they do? They chase after him. They damage his car. They threaten him. I'm actually surprised that nobody actually physically assaulted the gentleman. But the fact of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, if you are going to park your butt in the middle of a city street and you are going to block traffic, because you want to protest or you want to make people aware of the issues. If you surround someone's car and you act in a threatening manner, you should not be surprised when that 3,000-pound hunk of steel 
is running over your dead corpse in the street. That's a streets are places for cars, folks. And more importantly, if you threaten somebody inside a vehicle, it's not going to end well for you because they have no place to go except over you. And so the fact that we continue to express any kind of sympathy or pretend that these people are somehow nonviolent, it's, it's, a, it's a complete, it's willful ignorance. And it's, a, it's an acceptance or condoning of what is actually taking place. And the fact that the media does not proclaim in a much stronger voice that this sort of thing is not acceptable, well, it's not helping. So I'm thinking about all this overnight and before I sat down today to do a recording, and I thought to myself that it would be, it's important that I take the time to inform you, educate you, and most importantly, to warn you about what's coming. Now, I'm not in the business of scaring anybody. I'm not in the fear business. But what I am in is the business of expectations. And I'm not the first person to say this this way, but it bears repeating. If you don't have the stomach to watch the kind of stuff that happens in Portland, the kind of riots that took place in Ferguson, the kind of stuff that happened in Baltimore, if you don't have the stomach to watch this, then you need to turn your TV off for probably at least the next 30 days. It may actually end up being longer than that, but for right now, let's just start with a month because what's coming down the pipe is going to shock you. This kind of violent action is just getting started. It's just getting started. Social media, you don't even have to take my word for it. You don't even have to take my word for it. In fact, I would highly encourage you not to take my word for it. I want you to go out and listen and watch and read for yourself. Because these people, these progressive liberal Democrats, these Democrat socialists, these communists, these Marxists, these maybe in some cases they think they're anarchists, but doesn't quite fit the bill. These individuals are only beginning to act out their violent hatred and rage. And the reason why they're doing it is because they are losing grips of power within government. The progressive liberals are losing their grips on power. The Supreme Court was their last holdout. That was the last refuge. And now with Judge Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed as the next Supreme Court justice on that court, they have now potentially lost the Supreme Court as an avenue to essentially force their ideology on the rest of the country. And so what's now beginning to happen is they're becoming more and more desperate. And we're seeing the language begin to turn. And we're seeing even prominent members of the Democrat Party, but not just that, even people closer to the grassroots level who are beginning to have opinions that civility is no longer necessary and no longer expected. And so I want to help warn you about what's coming. But I don't want to necessarily just skip straight to the hey, this is the kind of things that you can expect. I want to talk you through what is taking place and potentially some reasons why, because it will help us all kind of understand what needs to be fixed, what the root cause potentially of all of this is. And while the root cause lies somewhere deep within the progressive ideology, there are various different steps because this is not happening all at once. It's a slowly 
progressing escalation of force that is ultimately designed to silence people so that you no longer speak out against the issues or you no longer express your own opinion. And it is also designed to intimidate you, hopefully into not voting and just staying home. But before we begin, I want to take a brief moment and I want to go to Hillary Clinton on CNN, where she basically tells during an interview that you cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for. Here's Hillary Clinton. You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for, what you care about. That's why I believe if we are fortunate enough to win back the House and or the Senate, that's when civility can start again. But until then, the only thing that the Republicans seem to recognize and respect is strength. So it's important to note a couple of things here. Like I said, first of all, number one, Hillary Clinton is now stating with on national, national television that all bets are off, that you cannot be civil with a political party who wants to destroy what you stand for. So you, you understand that they're taking something that is abstract and, and intangible, such as, quote, what you stand for. Now, this is all empty language. It's empty rhetoric. This is something that President Obama just absolutely mastered when he was running for president and even later became president. The phrase, what you stand for, is highly subjective. And what it does to the listener is the listener has to interpret what exactly it is that Hillary Clinton is talking about because it's too vague. So we have to naturally apply meaning to the statement in order to understand the context in which she's talking. And so how does that work? Well, it works the same way as President Obama's hope and change worked. Hope and change. What does that even mean? What is hope and change? Oh, you know. So what it resulted in is the listener plugging in, inserting into the keyhole their own specific details. But in this case, what you stand for is typically a very not just a subjective topic, but it is a it's not it's not tangible. It's nothing real or solid. What you stand for is an idea. It's not a person, it's not a place, it's not a thing, it's an idea. And so it can mean anything. So what she's basically saying is that if you are a progressive Democrat and you feel that something that somebody who is a Republican has said or done is an attempt to destroy what you stand for, that you have permission to no longer be civil. And of course, well, what does a lack of civility look like? Well, it looks like Ted Cruz and his wife being openly harassed at a restaurant and chased out. It looks like people showing up at Senator Susan Collins' home and protesting outside. It means people following you around everywhere in public, harassing you, yelling at you, threatening you, potentially physically assaulting you. Lack of civility can mean many things. But in this case, Hillary Clinton has just stated very, very clearly that there will be no civility until the Democrats have regained control of the government. Isn't that interesting that that's the ultimatum? It's not that we will become civil when the other side becomes civil, because that's an easy test to make. Because if that's simply the only criteria for, a, for civility to return is for them to perceive the Republicans as being civil, then we can easily test that. 
That's a theory that we can put to the test. We have a hypothesis and we have a test and then we have an outcome. But the point is, is that they're not interested in civility. They're interested in power and control. Now, if you haven't had a chance to visit my website, politicsband.com, I have a blog that I put up yesterday discussing the aspect of power in a little bit more detail using an article as an example of where you see this manifested. And the fact of the matter is that progressivism is inherently about power accumulation and nothing else. They are not interested in very, pay attention to me, look at me, look at me. They are not interested in helping people. They are not interested in elevating anybody's civil rights. They are interested in power, period. Anything and everything that moves them up in the hierarchy of power and authority in this country is considered fair game. Whether that's violence, whether that is nasty rhetoric, whether it is political, political sabotage, whether it is public accusations that are criminal in nature about something that is completely unprovable because it happened 36 years ago. These things are all considered to be fair game. And what Hillary Clinton is essentially saying is that it will continue until the Democrats have restored power or have been restored to power within the federal government. Let's listen to the rest of the clip and then I'll comment on the rest. It's about a a little less than a minute. And you heard how the Republican members led by Mitch McConnell, the president, really demeaned the confirmation process, uh, insulted uh, and attacked not only uh, Dr. Ford, but women who were speaking out. You know, look, I remember Republican operatives shutting down the voting in Florida uh, in 2000. I remember the swift voting of John Kerry. I remember the things that even the Republican Party did uh, to John McCain in 2000. I remember what they did to me for 25 years, the falsehoods, the lies, which unfortunately people believe because the Republicans have put a lot of time, money, and effort in promoting them. So when you're dealing with an ideological party that is driven by the lust for power, that is funded by corporate interests who want a government that does its bidding, it's hard. you can be civil, but you can't overcome what they intend to do unless you win elections. Now, isn't that interesting? Right there at the very end, you can't overcome what they intend to do unless you win elections. Well, yeah. Elections have consequences. I don't know about you, but President Obama taught me that, that elections have consequences and that what we're witnessing right now, right now, is a consequence of several different elections starting all the way back in 2012. Now, there's a few things that I want to comment on very briefly before I move on to my next point. She paints the Republicans as being these lustful for power, diabolical sort of Dr. Evil kind of individuals. And you can tell that she's projecting. She's really projecting here. Because if you pay attention to politics and you have watched the Republican Party with as much, if not more so, of a critical eye than you have watched the Democrats, you will realize that the quest for lust and power, or the lustful quest for power, rather, is absolutely not what the Republicans have attempted to do. The Republicans have attempted to be in charge, but the 
lust for power is most certainly not on their repertoire in terms of the things that they have tried to do. Now, I'm sure that some of you out there are looking at me sideways, and just bear with me here. Let me explain. If you watch the Republican Congress, House and the Senate, every time in the past that they have encountered a situation in which conservatism, if they were to exercise it, would result in some type of legislation being passed or some legislation being recalled or removed, something that produces an effect that has consequences. If that effect or that consequence comes about because of conservatism, the Republicans fold every time. I can give you probably the best example, which is the Affordable Care Act. The ACA was barely passed in 2010. It was highly partisan. They used some crazy parliamentarian rules to get it through. And once they got it through, of course, the next major thing that went into effect with the Republicans starting in 2012 was through the Tea Party. That was the year of the Tea Party. And one of the major things that people wanted was the repealing of the Affordable Care Act. And from the course of 2012 all the way up to 2016, I want to say that the Republicans made something to the tune of like 38 or 40 attempts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. But they never they were never successful. Well, why? Because they needed a president to sign the bill. And that president just happened to be Barack Hussein Obama. And he was not about to sign legislation repealing the Affordable Care Act, which was so very narrowly passed and would never be passed that way again. So you have to understand that the Republicans operate under this specific formula when they are the minority or they have the opportunity to act as the minority, even in the case of having both houses or having both sides of Congress and being blocked by a president. They will use that opportunity to pretend to be conservative. They will yell and scream and they will beat their fists against the podium and they will say conservative things and they will pass conservative bills fully knowing that they will never, ever see the president's desk or his approval pen. They will be vetoed or they will be downvoted within Congress. And they do this because they have no interest in suffering what they perceive to be as consequences of a conservative action. Republicans in Washington don't think that conservatism can win. They talk about conservatism. They pretend that they're conservative. But when it actually comes time to do things like protect religious liberty, to lower taxes, to effectively reduce spending and shrink the size of government, to protect life, in many, many, many instances where it's a big issue where there's a lot of focus and concentration on the issue. When there's a lot of national attention on an issue, they fold every time. And they fold when the opportunity arises for them to actually do something effective. And I will follow this up with a final point. After all of these attempted repeals of the ACA, in 2016, President Donald Trump is sworn into office. And an attempt to repeal the ACA is put underway and it is killed. The Affordable Care Act could have been repealed. And more importantly, politicians ran on repealing the Affordable Care Act, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. There are advertisements that Mitch McConnell ran in his home state, stating under no uncertain terms that he was going to repeal 
the Affordable Care Act, and he did not. It was a straight-up lie. So this notion that the Republicans lust after power is uh, not right. And somebody like Hillary Clinton, who's been in Washington pretty much all of her life, should know that, which is why I say she's projecting. It's not the Republicans that lust for power. It's the Democrats. It's the progressive party. They're the ones who are uncivil. They are the ones who lust after power. They are the ones who have the corporate interests in their back pocket. I mean, does anybody see Silicon Valley throwing cash at Republicans? Does anybody see the vast majority of Hollywood elites throwing cash at Republicans? What about all these other millionaires and billionaires out there? Are, are they all donating massive amount of money to the Republicans? Now, some of them are. Some of them are. But ladies and gentlemen, trust me when I tell you that the vast majority of major corporations in this country, whether it's the automotive manufacturers, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, these are all in the pockets of Democrats. Every one of them. Not the, not, not the least which are the private and public sector unions who happen to be some of the single largest donors of all time to government-run campaigns of politicians on virtually every level, from local all the way up to national. The unions donate incredible sums of money. And for all of the yelling and screaming over the money that the NRA donates to the Republican Party, the public sector unions make the NRA money look like pennies. They make it look like a joke. So it's just important to understand here that Clinton is projecting. This is not the Republican Party that she's talking about. She's talking about the Democrat Party. But again, the most important thing to understand is that she is essentially saying that no civility will be tolerated or allowed or even demanded as long as the Republicans continue to hold power. Now, where did this come from? Now, we can sit and say, oh, they're just terrible people and and this and that. Here's something very important that you have to keep in mind. There, there are a number of root causes, but the most important thing that I want you all to keep in the back of your mind is this. All of these people, whether they're Antifa, all the way down to you know an average Democrat voter, they all believe they're doing the right thing. Truly. I, you, you're going to have to trust me on this. The more radical the leftists, the more heroic they perceive themselves to be. These are not people who think that they are doing bad things. They believe in their heart of hearts that they are fighting real Nazis. They think that we are on the cusp of a country essentially being totally occupied like World War II Germany and Adolf Hitler. And they truly believe essentially that they are fighting real Nazis. And so that fuels all of this different behavior. You have to think about the mindset of somebody who thinks that their country is being taken over by the Nazi party and that there are going to be death camps and there's going to be extermination of people that they think that, I mean, I see comments on Twitter that Republicans are coming for all women, that first they came for Dr. Ford and now they're going to come for you. 
I don't even know what that means, but that's what they think. And they're like, oh my God, the Republicans are coming for me. And there are quotes out there from organizers at the Kavanaugh rally when he was being confirmed who stated almost verbatim that people were there fighting for their right to exist. So you have people who believe that they are essentially protesting and rioting and fighting for their ability to exist. Period. That is the level of lunacy that is beginning to take hold. The level of uneducated, misinformed, highly emotional progressives. And this is why you're starting to see them act crazy and destroy property and assault people and stalk them outside their homes because they think that if they don't, I don't know, that they're going to they're gonna die? That somebody's going to snuff them out in the middle of the night? That they're just going to cease to exist like some bad time travel movie? I don't know. But this is what they believe. And so I want to go to an article over at National Review that highlights something very specific that Clinton was talking about. And she talked about, you can't overcome this until unless you win elections. But here's the important thing to remember. Whenever Republicans win elections, the Democrats don't see them as being legitimate. They don't see the 2000 win by George W. Bush as legitimate, even though he won the Electoral College and the state of Florida certified their vote. The Supreme Court didn't decide whether or not the vote should take place. They simply decided potentially on what sh- how the vote should be done. And the Gore team wanted it done by hand, and the Supreme Court had to say, sorry, but we can't get it done that early. The Gore team wanted to stall as long as possible, so essentially they could manufacture the votes that they needed to win. That's, that's what was going to happen. It happened with Al Franken. They found votes in the backs of people's trunks that came down to like 32 votes that got Franken elected. Don't try and convince me that there wasn't voter fraud there. The same thing was being attempted in Florida, but the governor submitted and certified the vote. It was a done deal, but that wasn't legitimate. And then John Kerry, they thought John Kerry was not legitimate. And I'll get into more details about that. But the point is, is every time there's a Republican victory, it's seen as illegitimate. And this basically continues to fuel this hostility towards Republicans and how you cannot have any kind of civil discourse or civil interaction if you constantly view the other side as not being legitimate. I'm going to scroll down in the middle of the article, and this is what it says. Ronald Reagan won the presidency in 1980, but if you talk to certain aged progressives, they'll insist that the reason Reagan won was that George H.W. Bush secretly met with the Iranians in Paris to persuade them to keep the hostages in Tehran until after Election Day. In 1994, Republicans won control of the House and the Senate, and ABC News anchor Peter Jennings explained to viewers that it wasn't a real shift in the electorate, or at least not one to be respected. And this is what Jennings said. Ask, a, ask parents of any two-year-old, and they can tell you about those temper tantrums, the stomping feet, the rolling eyes, the screaming. It's clear that anger controls the child and not the other way around. It's the job of the parent to teach the child to control the anger and channel it in a positive way. Imagine a nation full of uncontrolled two-year-old rage. Yeah, we've seen it. 
Mr. Jennings. We're looking at it right now. The voters had a temper tantrum last week. Parenting and governing don't have to be dirty words. The nation can't be run by an angry two-year-old. Republicans had technically won the elections, but they hadn't won a legitimate victory. In 2000, Democrats believed that Al Gore really won Florida and that the Supreme Court stopped a recount that would have shown him to be the winner. Remember what Clinton said about stopping the voting. Never mind that the court voted 7-2 to two that the recount method the Gore campaign wanted, using a hand recount in their four best counties, violated the Equal Protection Clause. The 5-4 to four decision was about whether an alternative method could be completed in time. Democrats contended that GOP victories in 2002 midterms and the 2004 presidential election were the result of Diebold voting machines changing votes for Kerry to votes for Bush. Now, the Kerry situation is very important. And this was a moment in history that you still continue to see repeated. In 2004, the media had Kerry winning the election by 5 p.m. Eastern. So by 5 o'clock in the evening, because of exit polling data, they had Kerry winning over Bush. And then the voting locations started to close on the East Coast, and then the votes started to come in. There was, I can't remember who it was, but there was actually somebody, there was a, I think it was a reporter who spoke to Kerry and said, allow me to be the first person to say congratulations to you, Mr. President, or allow me to be the first person to call you, Mr. President. They thought that Kerry had it in the bag. But then the votes, the real votes started coming in and Bush completely, you know, he completely won over Kerry. And so it had to be a, it had to be an inside job. The votes couldn't be authentic because the exit polling data had to be right. So that was seen as an illegitimate victory. It had to have been rigged because the poll, the exit polling data had Kerry beating Bush. And of course, that's what the Democrats wanted. And that's what they believed. So they believe the exit polling data over the actual voting. So now back to the article. After the 2010 midterms, Democrats, Democrats contended that gerrymandering, a bipartisan passion, was suddenly a threat to democracy. No less a figure than Barack Obama enjoyed drawing the lines of his state legislative district to include some of the Chicago's wealthiest citizens, making the district a powerful financial and political base that he used to win his U.S. Senate seat. Now, again, this is another important point to remember. The Democrats complain about Republicans gerrymandering districts. Now, this is a problem that both parties have been able to take advantage of. But the point in this article is, is that Barack Obama himself had the opportunity to draw his own district lines and managed to snare some of Chicago's wealthiest citizens and then later use that as a springboard to get him to his U.S. Senate seat. So Barack Obama himself benefited from gerrymandering. So this is a practice that plagues both sides. It's a practice that happens in, in Democrat states and Republican states. It's, it's a problem, yeah, but it's a problem that is enjoyed by both sides. Now, let's, let's get back to the article. Um, a political fact of life that both parties utilized suddenly became intolerable once Democrats were in the minority again. After the 2014 midterms, Democrats started complaining that their total that their total vote this is listen to this very carefully the democrats started complaining that their total vote in all senate races combined was higher than the republicans total vote in all senate races combined and that somehow made the republican majority in the us senate illegitimate because so many of the gop states had smaller populations 
This is an argument you are starting to hear more of. This and also the illegitimacy of the Supreme Court, the notion that both of these bodies of government are illegitimate because they are either unrepresentative of the, of the actual population of people or they are illegitimate because an alleged gang rapist now sits on the bench. So the point is, is that once the Democrats lose power and control of a particular governing body, in this case the Supreme Court, now suddenly the Supreme Court is illegitimate. Its power is illegitimate. Its rulings are illegitimate. You can expect to start seeing states actually nullifying federal law if it comes out of this new Supreme Court that Brett Kavanaugh is now a part of. And they will cite the fact that there is an illegitimate member of the court and that they will suddenly begin to follow federal law if Brett Kavanaugh is removed from the bench. Get ready. It's coming. The second argument is that of the Senate. Because you see, the Senate is who confirmed Brett Kavanaugh. And so now what the argument, the argument being made by Democrats is that the Senate is illegitimate because the representation is equal from large states to small states. And that it's not fair, again, it's this word fairness, it's not fair that the smaller states have equal representation of senators to the large states. Now, all of this is based in ignorance. And these are very easy arguments to refute. The Senate used to be representatives of the states, not the people, the states. The people are represented in the House of Representatives, hence the people's house. The House of Representatives is divided along proportional lines of population per state. The Senate is considered equal because all states in the union are equal to each other. This also prevents the states that are smaller from being overruled or run roughshod over by the larger states. It means that Rhode Island has just as much of a say as California. However, California enjoys a majority inside the House because they have more people. And this is a form of checks. This is part of the checks and balances system. And that's also why the president has a veto pen. Because the president is elected as a essentially in a democratic vote, although via the electoral college. It's still in somewhat of a representative fashion. But all of these different methods are used to check each other. The House can check the Senate because it has a population-based representation. The Senate can serve as a check on the House by making sure that the House isn't doing anything that's harmful to the states. Now, unfortunately, we've amended the Constitution that changed the senatorial races and elections to being a popularity contest inside of a state. That's not the way it was intended. That's not the way it was designed. But that's the way it is. However, these individuals do not know what the history is behind all of this, nor have they probably even read the U.S. Constitution where all of this is laid out in actual black and white ink. But it's Again, it's not about what it's about. What it's about is claiming that a particular body is illegitimate because they no longer have control. So let's go back to the article. The second least populated state in the Union is Vermont, with an estimated 623,000 residents. The 45th is Delaware, and the 43rd is Rhode Island, and the 40th state is Hawaii, with about 1.4 million. All of those states have two Democratic senators. I don't hear Democrats complaining that those states are overrepresented. So that's the point, is that there are some Democrat states that are also part of this equal representation 
that states enjoy in the Senate. So if the Democrats want to start complaining about representation on the basis of population within the Senate, they're probably not going to be happy with how some of this works out. But at the end of the day, this is not something that's up for debate. The organization of the Senate is not something that's up for debate. If you want to change your organization of the Senate, you need to amend the Constitution, and good luck with that. The states are not going to tolerate. You're not going to get three-fourths of the states of this country to agree to essentially limit their own power and authority. It's just not going to happen. So the alternative is is just to basically attack its legitimacy and most likely nullify federal law. So the article says, Then there was 2016 when President Trump won the Electoral College but lost a popular vote. The irony is that not only had Hillary Clinton lost a slew of key states that Barack Obama had won four years earlier, but that other Democrats had figured out how to win these states in recent years. So they give examples like Senator Bill Nelson won in Florida, and then Senator Tammy Baldwin won in Wisconsin, Governor Tom Wolf won in Pennsylvania, Roy Cooper won North Carolina in 2016. Uh, another example was 2014, Iowa, Iowa Democrats won the state's treasurer and attorney general races. So the point was that it's not that these are impossible to win states, but as the author state, as the author says in the article, they're just impossible states for a candidate as lousy as Hillary Clinton to win. But to a lot of Democrats, Hillary Clinton's ability to run up her margins in states such as California and New York meant that Trump's win was somehow illegitimate. So they looked at these states and they saw how much of the state went for Clinton. They thought there's no possible way that Trump's victory was legitimate because look how many people voted for Clinton. The article says to be a certain type of Democrat activist, Trump's victory was illegitimate because of the popular vote. The Republican Senate majority is illegitimate because of the low population of some red states. The Republican House majority is illegitimate because of gerrymandering. And now the Supreme Court is illegitimate because of the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. And heck, maybe they'll throw in allegations against Clarence Thomas, too. Whenever the party they don't want wins something, they can find a reason why the victory isn't really legitimate. This is Calvin Ball, where the rules of the game are made up while you're playing, and the purpose of the constantly shifting rules is to ensure that one side always wins. So the author basically concludes their post here by pointing out what the one possible next step could be for the Democrat Party should they regain power. And there are quite a lot of things that have been stated, such as endless investigations and a priority of tasks that basically include gumming up the works for the Trump administration as much as humanly possible until 2020. The one thing that we will have to look out for, should the Democrats win a majority, and most certainly if they win the presidency, is that they aim to expand the size of the Supreme Court. This is something that was attempted under FDR. However, it was quickly recognized that the precedent that this would set would be incredibly dangerous. If each political party, as they took over the government, were able to continuously add and add and add justices to the Supreme Court, we could have a Supreme Court made up of dozens, if not maybe hundreds of justices because of the attempts to continuously tip the scales in favor of one party or another. 
FDR's own vice president saw the danger of doing this and campaigned actively against FDR to do this. And the reason why FDR was attempting to stack the court is because he was having significant problems getting the New Deal through the government. And the courts were one of the major impediments of getting that done. And so he intended to pack the courts. Now, this is not a new strategy, as I mentioned before. In fact, it happened under the Obama administration. The Obama administration packed the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and managed to expand that bench. The D.C. Circuit, which is argued to be the second most powerful court in the country because it oversees a lot of the back-and-forth legal aspects that end up with respect to Congress or various different aspects of the government. They are hashed out in the D.C. Court of Appeals eventually. So that being the case, we already can anticipate this to be one potential strategy. And it will be all based on this aspect of illegitimacy. Now, this is just the introduction to this particular aspect. And I know that we're running short on time, and so I'm going to move through a few more of these items. But it's important to set up the premise that Democrats do not see any Republican victory as legitimate. It doesn't matter how small or how large the victory they will find a reason to delegitimize that particular victory. They do not see Republicans winning as being fair play. There was always a reason that they are cheated. And so this is another justification for them to engage in uncivil or even violent acts. So let's talk about some of these specifics. Now, these are just cherry picked. Okay, like there's a lot more of them out there. And I also want to say, I'm not making the case that there has never been a Republican or a conservative that has said anything controversial, most certainly threatening or potentially violent. There's this whole, well, it happens on both sides. Yes, it happens on both sides. But you do not see conservatives taking to the streets and destroying property and setting cop cars on fire and assaulting people in broad daylight who are doing nothing more than waving American flags or trying to exercise their right to essentially to to congregate and to organize and to protest along with everyone else. But instead, they are assaulted, their property is destroyed, they're threatened, and it's done by people behind masks who hide behind their anonymity. So you have to understand that while, yes, I'm sure that we can find an example of where someone has said or done something violent who happens to identify as a conservative, by and large, you do not see conservatives out there calling for a lack of civility. Far from it, and quite the opposite. However, you do have Republicans out there, and I would like to count myself among them, who are saying that the old way of doing things is over. The old rules are out. We have to start understanding what's at stake. We cannot simply sit around and ride on principle alone as the guiding force to lead us to victory. We have to eventually make Democrats live under the very rules that they have fashioned for us. And until they understand what those rules are, until they understand how uncomfortable they are and how infringing they are upon your personal liberties, they are not going to change. So let's talk about some examples of some Threatening violence. Now, this is relatively new, and this is from The Hill on their Twitter page. A Minnesota teacher is put on leave for tweeting asking who will, quote, 
take one for the team and kill Kavanaugh. They put this teacher on leave. They didn't fire her. She was put on leave for making a direct threat to a Supreme Court justice on the internet. But that's just one. That was just one that I easily dug up. I'm going to go over to townhall.com. This is from an article here on uh, June 15, 2017, where it's 20 liberal calls for violence against conservatives in quotes. And I'm just going to go through a few of these. It says, after Republican Representative Steve Scalise was shot yesterday, many liberals on Twitter celebrated and said things like, quote, the only good fascist is a dead one, end quote. That's a shame, but babies blown to bits at Sandy Hook was worse and Scalise takes money from the NRA. If the shooter has serious has a serious health condition, then it is taking pot shots at the GOP leadership considered self-defense. Let me read that one more time. If the shooter has a serious health condition, then is taking pot shots at the GOP leadership considered self-defense. It's very important to highlight, once again, the thought process that is used to justify this kind of behavior. The notion that this is all done in self-defense, you see. Now, typically, it's done with respect to speech. The notion is that you or I saying something to someone else that is considered hurtful, and that speech is a form of physical violence. And you'll even have scientists in the humanities that attempt to back this up, stating that speech actually has a physical effect upon someone's body. Now, is that untrue? I don't know. But I do know that within the context of the law, speech is not violence. Speech is not an assault. It is not battery. Speech cannot touch. Speech cannot inflict physical pain. But these individuals who believe that it can then claim that they have the right to exercise real violence for something that you said. And in this case, they're trying to make the joke that if the shooter has a health condition and someone like Steve Scalise, who's in the GOP leadership, is trying to take away their health care, which is completely untrue, then they have self-defense rights to shoot. Here's another quote. If KKK supports Steve, Calise, supports Steve Scalise dies, the shooter deserves a holiday. True leadership. Now the Trumps, Cush, and Miller need to be transitioned. Some of this is not complete English because it's on Twitter, but you get the point. Let's, uh, let's go through some other ones. Um, Michelle Bachman, slit your wrist, go ahead, or do us all a better thing. Move that knife up about two feet, starting right at the collarbone. This is from some. This is from Montel Williams. I'm actually curious, and I'm going to look right now. Yes, the Montel Williams has called for Michelle Bachman, Representative Michelle Bachman, to kill herself. How about that? Uh, F that dude. I'll smack that effer's comb over right off his effing scalp, like for real. If I met Donald Trump, I'd punch him, punch him in his effing face. And that's not a joke. Even if he did become president, watch out, Donald Trump, because I will punch you in your effing face if I ever meet you. Secret Service had better just effing be on it. Don't let me be anywhere within a block. Rapper Everlast on Donald Trump. This is Bill Maher. 
I have zero doubt that if Dick Cheney was not in power, people wouldn't be dying needlessly tomorrow. I'm just saying, if he did die, other people, more more people would live. That's a fact. That's Bill Maher. Um, let's see if I can find some other ones. There's uh, Representative Paul Konjorski. Looks like a Democrat of Pennsylvania. That's Scott down there that's running for governor of Florida. Instead of running for governor of Florida, they ought to have him, they ought to have him and shoot him. Put him against a wall and shoot him. He stole billions of dollars from the United States government, and he's running for the governor of Florida. He's a millionaire and a billionaire. He's no hero. He's a damn crook. If we just, if just we don't prosecute big crooks, or it's just that we don't prosecute big crooks. I apologize. Oh boy, um, this was a, a fundraising ad that was put out by the Saint Petersburg Democratic Club. And then there's Rumsfeld, who said of Iraq, we have our good days and our bad days. We should put this SOB up against a wall and say, this is one of our bad days, and pull the trigger. Do you want to salvage our country, be a savior of our country? Then vote John Kerry and get rid of the whole Bush bunch. From a, and that was a, fun, a fundraising ad. Uh, let's see. Michael Feingold. Republicans don't believe in the imagination, partly because so few of them have one but mostly because it gets in the way of their chosen work, which is to destroy the human race and the planet. Human beings who have imaginations can see a recipe for disaster in the making. Oh, they can. Republicans whose goal in life is to profit from disaster and who don't give a hoot about human beings either can't or won't, which is why I personally think that they should be exterminated before they cause any more harm. The Village voices Michael Feingold in a theater review of all places, according to the author. This is uh, Linda Stasi, New York Daily News, on a victim murdered in the San Bernardino terrorist attack. But the victim is also inaccurately being eulogized as a kind of loving religious man. Make no mistake, as disgusting and deservingly dead as the hate-filled fanatical Muslim killers were. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. I'm looking for. Uh, but in the U.S., we don't die for speaking our minds. Or we're not supposed to, anyway. <laughs> this guy was an anti-government, anti-Islam, pro-NRA, rapidly anti-Planned Parenthood kind of guy who posted that it would be freaking awesome if hateful Ann Coulter was named head of Homeland Security. That one's not a really great one. I'm just going through here. Let's see. Ooh, jo oh, Joss Wheaton. Oh, Joss Wheaton. Violence solves nothing. I want a rhino to F Speaker Ryan to death with its horn because it's funny, not because he's a GOP murder bro. Oh, my goodness. Dan Savage. I wish they, Republicans, were all effing dead. Madonna. Yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm outraged. Yes, I have thought an awful lot about blowing up the White House, but I know that won't change anything. Do you folks, are you starting to get the point? Are you starting to get the point? This stuff is everywhere. It is everywhere. It is all over Twitter. It is all over Facebook. It is all over YouTube. It's all over social media everywhere. It is unbelievable what is out there with this stuff. Absolutely unbelievable. And what we essentially have is a situation where the left is actively calling for violence against the right. And nothing is being refuted. Nothing is being, no one is distancing themselves from it. No one is doing anything to combat it. And this is why it's important that you understand this. Because this is exactly where everything is going. This is the last, 
this is the last line of defense. The progressive liberals have nowhere else to go. As their ideology becomes exposed, it drives more people away, which lessens their power and control within government, as it has since 2012. And as the power and control in government lessens, they become more enraged and they become more radicalized, which in turn drives more people away. It is a negative feedback loop. The more it perpetuates, the more people run away, the more extreme the remaining people become. The situation with Brett Kavanaugh was an enormous turning point and may very well have saved the midterms from Democrats taking control. Now, we still have a month to go, and anything can happen. But the bottom line is, is that as time goes on, and as these people feel that they are losing grip of power and control in this country, as they are losing their grip on these items, they're going to become more desperate. And as their desperation increases, so does the violence, so does the violent rhetoric. Because in their mind, this is, this is very, very critical. You have to... You, it's important to understand how they think because to rational, free-thinking people like you and I and like many, many others in this country who get up every day, who go to work, who feed their families, who provide for their families, who take care of their kids, who take care of their parents and their grandparents, who are trying to make a career, who are trying to set aside some savings, who are trying to get a house for themselves and to care for retirement or send their kids to college. This sort of thing doesn't make sense to us because we live in a civil society where we have civility, where we recognize that even if we disagree with somebody, that that doesn't give us the right to club them over the head with a baseball bat. That doesn't give us a right to destroy their property, to physically harm them, or even to make threats, but certainly not to lay our hands on, on each other. We can't do that. No matter how enraged that our boss might make us feel or how enraged our, our, our spouse might make us feel, we live in a society of civility where we do not assault each other. We do not harm each other. We do not destroy each other's property. That if we cannot convince, persuade, or debate our way into an issue successfully, then we have to be tolerant and accepting of the results of whatever comes out of that, whether it is a lost election, whether it's a lost position, whether it's lost governmental power. Whenever the Democrats win elections, you don't see Republicans calling them illegitimate. When Barack Obama won the 2012 election, I remember that evening, and at no point did it ever occur to me that it was an illegitimate election. What occurred to me was that we had voters who came out in the majority who did not know this man, who did not understand this man's history, who did not understand exactly what he stood for, did not understand the specifics of his politics. Because if they did, if they understood that he's not interested in protecting the individual, that he rejects the American founding, that he rejects American ethics and morals and philosophy, they would not have voted for him. But their perception of Barack Obama was much different than my own. But at no point did I ever find myself questioning his legitimacy. 
even when it came to something as something as outrageous as the birther situations and accusations. I would have conversations with friends of mine and they would ask me, do you really think that Barack Obama was born in the United States? And this is my answer. My answer is, I don't know. And the reason why I say I don't know is because I haven't seen any physical evidence to suggest one way or the other. That's not coming from a position of doubt. It's coming from a position of humility. Like, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I do know that if he wasn't born in the United States, we will never know. We will never know. Because if you could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the president, Barack Obama, was not born in the United States, you are not going to find a federal judge in this country who would be willing to rule that that is the case and that his presidency was illegitimate. You won't. It would create a constitutional crisis and it would destroy the foundation and the faith of the American voting system. It would decimate, absolutely decimate the American voting completely. Everyone's faith in the, in the ability to freely elect somebody into office would be completely shattered and it would be irrever- irreversibly damaged. So it didn't matter. It really doesn't matter what I think in that situation because, number one, I have seen evidence on both sides presented and I don't know what is real and what's not. But I do know that even if I was to find out that something wasn't real, it didn't matter. You weren't going to find anybody who was going to do anything about it anyway. And while that may not be a satisfying answer to some, at the end of the day, I accepted the election. I accepted the election. He was our president. This was our Congress. And this is what we had to deal with. And if we were going to change anything, we had to educate people that we knew and that would listen to us. At no point did it ever occur to me, did it ever occur to my friends or my family that we needed to take to the streets and that we needed to harass people and we needed to damage property and we needed to assault people. This was never, ever, ever an option. And so, excuse me, but the lack of civility comes squarely from the progressive left. That's where it originates, and that's where it's going to come from. And so we're going to wrap up today with me just kind of putting this all together for you. You have to understand that the Democrats are now receiving signals from their elected leaders and from their formerly elected leaders that civility is no longer required, and that civility is no longer required because of stupid abstract things such as the Republican Party trying to destroy what you stand for as a Democrat. We see instances all over social media where leftists are making actual physical harm and or death threats against conservatives and how they have a pattern of behavior that has been escalating since 2016 as they feel that they are slowly losing their grip on the power of the American government. And so... I need to warn you, I need to warn you that if you are going to watch what happens in the coming weeks up to the election, 
And most certainly, if the Democrats lose the midterms, if they lose seats, if they do not gain a majority, you can expect that this type of violence and action is going to ratchet up significantly all the way through 2020. So strap yourselves in and make sure that you are ready and prepared for what is coming. Now, what that may be, I don't know. It could be something, it could be nothing. I would really prefer that it was nothing. But it's important that I warn you all about what's coming. Not to frighten you, but to prepare you. So, until then, thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I do appreciate your support. Again, please feel free to contact me on social media, facebook.com slash politicsband or at politicsband on Twitter. And we will talk to you 